All right, well, it is the 4th of July weekend. Uh, no doubt you know that. We had a great 4th of July uh, traditions concert last night. That was cool. Uh, hopefully, you are not only going to be celebrating um, the birth of our country uh, in some fantastic way, an event, a trip or something, but that you'll enjoy your family as well. And I have to tell you now, as our, our youth mission trips are starting to come back home after being overseas, it is profound what happens in the life of somebody who's been overseas, particularly to a third world developing country, and when we get home, something incredible happens. You just see America almost for the first time again. You notice the prosperity. I mean, we are a prosperous nation. In fact, the, the poorest 5% of our country is wealthier than 70% of the rest of the world. That's astounding. Now, if there's poverty here, it is real and it's painful and we bring help for sure. But just comparatively, um, the rest of the world is so much worse off. We're a prosperous country. We're also a country of, of vision. Even though we're a prosperous country, we have a vision of what more is possible. Every person has a vision of what more is possible. Companies, uh, institutions have a vision of more. Uh, I've learned as I visited over a dozen countries that that's not true in a lot of the world. A lot of the world just believes they're stuck and they have no hope. Our country really obsesses on rights, personal rights and privileges associated with every single person in our country. We also have freedoms, and we talk about our freedoms often. We can think for ourselves, speak for ourselves, create, move, work. We can put our time and our efforts and our talents where we want to put them, and nobody tells us what to do. It's a great thing to be a part of America. Now, as we study Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we are looking at the culture of the Jews, the Israelites. And this is 450 years before the life of Jesus Christ. And we see that during the time of Malachi, the Jewish people had a lot of freedoms and had a lot of prosperity. Now, I want to be clear about this. They were under the rule of the Persians. So the Persians were ruling half of the known world, right? And so they were under the rule of the Persians. But the Persians gave them a lot of delegated privileges. They could participate in their own culture, their own community, and their own religion. So they had a lot of freedoms. Nothing like the freedoms we enjoy. But they had a, a, an essential system that was free. Let me give you a little list of what that meant. First of all, they had a thousand-year history that was rich. And they could, they could take great pride in it. From the calling of Abraham to the calling of Moses, the Exodus, establishing a land in modern-day Israel, and the kings that followed. They had a thousand-year history, history that was rich. They had security. Now, that security was provided for them by the Persians, so it's not like they had autonomy, but they had a secure environment. Uh, they had a thriving capital city, Jerusalem, which was built by the permission and some funding from the Persians. They also had a thriving religious system, that religious system in the capital city of Jerusalem included a beautiful temple that the Persians helped to build, included the Levitical priesthood that we talked about last week, included all of their rites and rituals, sacrifices uh, of the, the Old Testament fully at work in the Jewish people. They also had their Old Testament. The 39 books of the Old Testament were fully formed by 450 BC. So they had their Old Testament, they had their word of God. They also had a unified and funded national and religious culture. So while their prosperity wasn't near what we enjoy here today, they had a measure of prosperity and freedom that created an interesting dynamic among the Jewish people. With this prosperity and freedom, they began to be apathetic about their relationship with God. 
They did all of the things for God externally. They were doing stuff for God, right? They were involved in their temple rituals and sacrifices and festivals and Sabbaths and systems. They were doing all this stuff for God externally, but God wasn't meeting their expectations in return. God wasn't doing back for them what they felt they were doing for God. The whole religious system had failed. As a result, they had this sense of just meh about their relationship with God. We talked about this guy last week. That was their relationship with God. They were doing stuff for God. God wasn't doing stuff back for them. I mean, they wanted a Messiah. They wanted a Savior. They wanted to defeat the Persians. They wanted a global empire. So how's that for a prayer request list? God, would you give me an A on the test and a global empire? And they were doing this stuff for God. God wasn't giving that stuff to them, so their relationship with God just began to be apathetic. And so as a result, Malachi is written. Malachi is written to correct the false assumption of religion, this religion based on the external. Because the reality is religious systems based on the external always fail. And I'm telling you, every single person alive has been a part of this kind of religious system. It's the religious system that says, I do stuff for God, God does stuff for me. I don't care if you're a monotheistic, polytheistic, if you worship spirits, if you believe in karma, God help you. You do good things, good things come back to you. Isn't that the system? Every religious system has the same thing. You do stuff for God, and he'll do stuff for you, and this fails every time. That's why people get so disillusioned about religion. Why is this bad thing happening? I was doing religious things for God. Why is this bad thing happening? I'm a good person. What are we saying? Because I'm a good person, no bad thing should happen to me? It never works like that, never, right? But if we think it should work like that and it doesn't, then we get disillusioned and we can start separating ourselves from God. We can start getting cynical. That's what happened with the Jews during the time of Malachi. So God writes this book of Malachi and he says, live with heart. This is the basic theme, live with heart. Don't live on this do stuff for God, God does stuff for you. Live, in, live with heart, live in relationship with God. Not external religion, relationship. So four weeks ago in Malachi 1, we talked about the heart of God is for a relationship. Then the heart of worship, not based on the external. Last week we talked about the heart of the leader and the heart of the church. And then today we're gonna talk about the heart of the family. Because this meh relationship was also taking root in the family. This was the emoji of the family. Just whatever, we're just doing our thing. So let me ask you, is this the emoji of your family? Is this the emoji of, of your marriage? Just when we have our roles and responsibility, we don't have kind of that heart or passion that we might have used to have, but you know, it's, we're getting along. Kind of half-heartedly, but getting along. Is this the emoji of your marriage? It could be a little worse. Maybe this is the emoji of your marriage. You're just worried, sad, afraid. I mean, you're kind of a mess. Maybe it's a little worse. Maybe your marriage is angry, bitter. You're biting at each other. You're nitpicking each other. Maybe you fought a half a dozen times yesterday and you don't even know what you fought about because it's just little nonsense, but you're just mad at each other, right? Not uncommon. Maybe worse. Maybe your marriage is just flat dead. Your marriage has no pulse. You're with each other, maybe, but you're not talking to each other. You go out to eat, you're staring at your sandwich, looking for patterns. There's no life there. Maybe you're thinking, you know what, this is over. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know, should we separate? 
maybe thinking of divorce, maybe you are getting divorced as we speak. Maybe this is your marriage. God wants your marriage to be this, kissy face. God wants kissy face marriages. This is our emoticon. Whenever Jenny and I send each other texts, it's always kissy face. Anywhere between three and five is disgusting. But we love it. I mean, if there's a text that we send without kissy faces, there's some problem. There's something serious going down in the Treadway household. God wants our marriages to thrive. He wants our marriages to be happy, right? That's what he wants. And he tells us in the book of Malachi, this very tiny, obscure book at the very tail end of the Old Testament, he tells us how to have this kind of marriage. Malachi 2.10 says this. God says, have we not all one father? So he's appealing to relationship here. My relationship with you is is about a father-child relationship, right? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Now he's talking about relationships with one another. He says, you don't understand the covenant relationship this way, and he corrected us in the last chapter. Now he's saying, you don't understand the covenant relationship you should have with each other. You're breaking faith with me and you're breaking faith with each other. You're breaking covenant with me and you're breaking covenant with each other. God is saying you are losing the ability to live in covenant relationship with each other, right? So here's the question. What is covenant relationship? What is covenant relationship? This question, I believe, is one of the most important questions you can ask in your life. What is covenant relationship? Well, here's what a covenant is. A covenant is a relationship bound by an unconditional promise to love, serve, protect, and forgive. God says, that's how I love you. I love you in a covenantal way. God made a promise to us from way back in the time of Abraham. You know, we're talking, we're talking roughly, I don't know, 1800 B.C., right? God made a promise to Abraham I'm going to love and bless you. I'm going to love and bless your family. I'm going to love and bless your nation. And I'm going to love and bless the entire world. God gave that covenant 1800 B.C., nearly 4,000 years ago. God loves us covenantally. Now he wants us to love each other covenantally, especially in marriage. Especially in marriage. That's been his plan all along. Genesis 127 says this about marriage. This is when God created the institution of marriage. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he blessed them. He blessed them. So this is the marriage now. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Here's God's vision for marriage. God's vision for marriage is that men and women understand they're created equal. Both made in the image of God. That was given 4,000 years ago to ancient cultures that treated women like property. Men and women are equal, and they are to be bound in a covenantal relationship. And if two equals are bound together in a covenantal relationship, promising to love each other selflessly, unconditionally, sacrificially, to protect, to serve, to love, to forgive, if that's the promise that binds a married couple together, then the entire world will thrive. The entire world will thrive. What God says that all the earth will be subdued or all the earth will be at peace through covenantal marriages. I am sad to report that the Jews who were first to receive this vision for marriage never really understood the covenant of marriage throughout the entire history of the Old Testament. In fact, during the time of the writing of Malachi, they were still caught in this standard, um, ancient mistreatment of women and mistreatment of wives. And this is really why God steps in in the pages of Malachi. 
In ancient Hebrew culture, women were purchased as property. The father of the groom would pay a price to buy the child of another person. The father of the groom would pay the father of the bride to purchase the wife for his son. The dads would make the arrangement. Women were property. Men would have all the power. Women were considered oftentimes to be of less productive value than animals, and they were treated like that. Women could be disciplined by their husbands. Women were not recognized as persons. This is a quote from a Jewish scholar. Women were not recognized as persons, but bought for marriage like cattle. Men could legally marry other women. Women could not marry other men. Uh, The reason why men didn't usually marry a lot of other women is because they couldn't afford it, right? And if every man had multiple wives, you can understand the math of that gets a little awkward. So most of the time, men would only purchase one wife. But if you were a landowner, business owner, prince, or king, you could buy multiple wives, and you did. You could buy multiple wives. Only men were allowed to divorce their wives. Women could never divorce their husbands. Only men were allowed to divorce their wives. Nuts, right? That was ancient civilization, even with the Hebrews who had Genesis 1 that talks about this magnificent view of women being equal and covenantal love. They never really embraced that, even during the time of the writing of Malachi. So God steps in, Malachi 2.14. God acts. The Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. He's going after the men, because the men were the perpetrators here. Because you have broken your faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. See what God's doing? He's appealing to the heart. He's saying, guys, you're treating women like property. It's all this external stuff, right? She's your property. You have roles and responsibilities, but you've lost the partnership. You've lost the covenant. God says, I'm stepping in and acting. I am acting. I'm not going to let this go. And then God gives a beautiful vision for marriage. Uh, Malachi 2.15 says this. Has not the Lord made the two one, going back to that vision of covenantal union, in flesh and in spirit? And God says that specifically because, you know, if women are property and men are men, they're focusing on the flesh, right? God reminds them it's about partnership, it's about covenant, it's about flesh and spirit. There's to be a relationship here, right? A relationship. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. All of God's people will be godly when we understand covenant relationship, when we understand the idea of selfless sacrifice for one another. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. See what God is doing, particularly to the men? Get your act together. Stop with this nonsense of treating women as less than you. Stop with this nonsense of treating women like property. Stop with this nonsense of just this external rules and expectations and, 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 and roles and responsibilities and love your wife in covenantal union as a partner in flesh and in spirit. And throughout God's word, God gives this incredible, beautiful vision of a marriage that has spiritual oneness. And by spiritual oneness, I'm not necessarily talking about you two doing a half an hour quiet time in in private worship as a married couple. You can do that if you like. I don't do that at home. But spiritual oneness is, is deriving our covenantal union from God, deriving our love from God. And so because you know, I understand God's love and my wife understands God's love. Now we can love each other spiritually. That's the vision of marriage. It's a relational oneness. I love getting together with couples, uh, premarital counseling, and I always ask the question, what do you love about the other person? 
And I just dig it when uh, one of them grabs the hands of another and looks them right in the eyes and she is my best friend. He is my best friend. I love that, right? And I love it even more. That, that, you're supposed to do that when you're going to get married. I love it even more when you're facing 25 years like my wife and I are next year. And we could say we're each other's best friend. 50 years of marriage. We had a couple at Rancho here, right here in this gym, celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary and still saying to the whole group, she's my best friend, he's my best friend. And I told them, my wife and I, hey, we want to be like you when we grow up, right? I mean, what a cool thing. That's relational uh, oneness. Then emotional oneness. You know, connected and having conversations with each other, right? Not just staring off into space or just getting lists done around the house. Emotional oneness, sharing life to life. And then sexual oneness. This is God's gift to us. Sexual oneness is the physical display of a spiritual reality, right? Sex isn't just sex for the sake of fill in the blank. It's a sacrament. It's a physical expression of a spiritual reality reserved for marriage. This is God's vision. Does any of us do this perfectly? What's the answer? Not at all. But this is our vision, and this is what we strive for. Not the external, but the internal heart-to-heart relationship at home. So the question here is, how do we get this? We've got about eight minutes left. How do we get this? How do we achieve this? If you are married, how do you get this? If you have been divorced, and maybe there's a marriage in your future, how can we get this? If you are young and you've never been married, this is the perfect time. I hope none of you have tuned out saying, well, this is for married people. I'm in a zone. No, no, this is the time. This is for you. How do we get this? A couple things here. First one is a little controversial, and uh, this group can handle it. No problem at all. Perhaps the church should care less about civil marriage and care more about the covenantal union. All right? So what I'm going to do now... I try to carry myself pretty humbly in most subjects. I'm a lifelong learner, that kind of thing. On this subject, I wish I had a megaphone to the entire church throughout the world because I think I got something going on here, all right? I, I never talk like that. But to me, this is key. Civil marriage is different than covenantal union. It's different. Now, the evangelical church over the last several decades has gotten really bent out of shape about how our culture has redefined civil marriage, I'm not so concerned about that because my focus is covenantal union. My focus is on what we, the church, solemnize as a, as a union between a man and a woman. That's what I care about. What the world does in terms of their ceremonies and their you know, rites and rituals, it's not so much my business. It's not that I don't care. It's just that I care less about that than I care about the covenantal union that we do here in church. As a result, I'm using the word marriage far less than I used to. When I'm with a couple, I talk a lot about covenantal union, covenantal union, covenantal union. I want to separate out the idea of civil marriage from covenantal union. Um, just to kind of have a little bit of fun with this. Um, 1 Corinthians 5.12 gives us every biblical right to not care about civil marriages. The Apostle Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Fair question. The evangelical church in particular has made a career out of judging people outside of the evangelical church. Evangelicals have assumed that the unbelieving world should act like evangelical Christians. That's insane. It's utterly insane. Why would we expect that? And why would we expect that when evangelical Christians don't act like evangelical Christians? Right? 
when our marriages fail, 50% of our marriages fail, what right do we have to talk about the, the change of the definition of, of civil marriages? We have no right to speak to this at all. What we have a right to do, as Paul says, is to look at ourselves and to say, what's the quality of our marriages? Are, are we in this external transactional relationship where you do for me, I do for you, I do stuff for you, you do stuff for me? Is that the, is that the tone and tenor of our marriages here inside the church? If so, let's reform that. Let's revitalize that. Let's renew that. Let's not judge everybody else for their problems when we got problems ourselves, right? Let's focus here. Let's focus here. Civil marriage licensed by the state, they're not the same as the covenantal union celebrated by the church. They're two different things. Civil marriages, now this is a little bit crass here, but civil marriages are legal unions binding two taxable persons as one taxable person. I know that's a little crass because somebody getting into a civil marriage, no doubt will talk about, I love you, I love you. No doubt they will have this thought, oh, we're going to be together forever, growing old, raising kids. Everybody's well-intended going into a civil marriage. The problem is without a very deep and powerful understanding of God's covenantal love for us, we do not have the covenantal capacity to love each other in the same way. So, you know, it's, it's no wonder half of the marriages end in divorce because we get into it as a transaction. I do stuff for you, right? And then you're going to do stuff for me, right? That's just simply how it works so often, so often. Um, as a result... There is a, a broken home phenomenon in our, in our culture. And I want to share with you half of a music video. Now, this is back kind of in my day of Blink-182. Any Blink fans in here? Okay, yeah, you, you know it, yeah. There's a very famous song, I think 2005, called Stay Together for the Kids. We're not going to see the whole music video. We're going to see about half of it. This video is wonderful. It is designed to express the pain that is felt when a home lives in this transactional sort of a mentality. You do for me, I do for you, and the, and the terrible destruction that can happen. Let's take a look.
gives you a, a taste of the emotion that comes when a home is falling apart, when a home is not experiencing unconditional covenantal love, but in this transactional, external, I'm doing stuff for you, why aren't you doing stuff for me, and keeping score, and the tension rises, and tension rises to the points when hearts separate and people do very, very stupid things, and a home falls apart. That's why in Malachi 2.16, God says he hates divorce. Now, God gave the gift of divorce to protect women early on from the mistreatment of being held as property. And, and, and now, you know, we are living in, in an environment, this isn't new for us today, but we're living in an environment where there's a, such a lack of, of this sense of covenantal love that we have trouble loving each other the way God loves us. We have trouble really connecting with each other as husband and wife and working through issues the way we should. Now, this is not to heap guilt upon people who have been divorced. I mean, there are legitimate biblical reasons to get divorced. There are certainly instances where it is the right and best thing to do to get divorced because of some you know, dangerous or, or terrible thing. But I also want us to understand that, that while Malachi 2.16 can hit some of us really hard that God hates divorce, I always tell somebody who is a little bit I guess shocked by that verse to say, well, don't you hate divorce as well? The people who hate divorce the most are the people who have been divorced. It's just agreeing with God to say, okay, the past is the past. God is God of healing. God is God of new starts. God is a God that can heal a man and heal a woman and heal kids. But going forward, can we strive for something better? There's no guarantees, but can we strive for something better? Can we strive for covenantal love? Can we strive for covenantal love? There's two things I do in premarital counseling to strive for covenantal love. One of them is uh, a couple will, will come to me, and this is usually week two or three, and I'll say, hey, write out the expectations you have for your husband. Write out the expectations you have for your wife. That's a fun homework assignment. Ooh, I'm going to do that. Now, the, the wife um, will take a week or two, and she will write various drafts and pray over it, and she will come with with a, quite a list. So this is a list from the wife, um, expectations for her husband to be. The husband will write on a napkin on the way to the counseling session his list, and it is uh, usually pretty, pretty short. And every guy's list I've ever seen is the exact same, and you know it's on there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of a moment where, you know, they're, they're going to read these things to each other, and they're kind of nervous because they're going to read some stuff, and they don't know that they're spouse to be knows they have these expectations, so they're a little nervous, but they're a little excited because they get the chance to get off their chest and let them know what's expected. And I say, okay, now do this. Rip it up entirely and throw in the trash. You mean not going to read it? No, we're not going to read it. Why did I spend all this? I don't know. <laughs> but you get the point. In an external transaction conditional-based relationship, it's about expectations. Whether we write them down or not, we all go into our marriage with expectations. I'm expecting this marriage to go like our dating life went. 
I don't go down like that. Sorry. We expect all these things, whether they're written or not. But the reality is if we go into that relationship with expectations, that marriage is going to fail. It's going to fail. I'm doing stuff for you. Why aren't you doing stuff for me, right? I'm doing my part. Why aren't you doing yours? I'm putting in way more than you are now. We're biting at each other and comparing each other. That is an incredible exercise to go through. The other thing that I do is during the wedding day, during the wedding ceremony, and I warned the couple about this because it's kind of a shock to the system, but during a wedding, I will say to the couple, I will say, this is the day of your death. And I get awkward laughter like we just got right now. This is the day of your death. Well, of course, it's a shock to the people who are there. The couple knows I'm going to say it because we've talked about it. But they, the, the group is like shocked. Like, what do you mean the day of your death? This is, they're wearing white. This is wonderful. There's expensive flowers. This is all wonderful. It is wonderful. If man, you're dead today, and if woman, you're dead today, then it's going to be wonderful. But if you come thinking, hey, this is going to fulfill me. This is going to make my life great. This is going to complete me. This is going to be... You know, then we're coming for the wrong reasons. And that marriage is pretty well doomed. But if we come to the wedding altar to die, then we have something going for us. I died on the day of my wedding. Jenny Allen died on the day of our wedding. Now, we haven't lived that out perfectly. We had an eight-year itch, actually a seven-year itch that turned into a nine-year itch. We had three kids in diapers, and um, we were poor, and I was way busy, and I had an attitude problem and a selfishness problem. That was all on me, and, uh, and we had some trouble. Even though, you know, I was a pastor at the time, and I knew what I should be doing in, in our household, I did not do it. And I got whiny and selfish, right? And my, God used my wife to actually help get us turned around. Uh, we actually had a day on Friday. We blew this on Friday. We had planned our Friday to be a disaster, Friday was just going to be a disaster. We had a lot of stuff to do, and a lot of hard stuff was, was kind of going on on that Friday. We just knew Friday was going to be kind of a disaster. We knew it going into it, but we thought, okay, we can do this. Let's get through this day. A, a day that was planned to be a disaster became a nightmare by like 8.30. This was just all going downhill. And so we started just kind of biting at each other, coarse with each other, and a uh, little firm with each other and short. And, and it was getting kind of, kind of bad. And then at 4 p.m., we just found ourselves in our, in our bathroom, in our, in our room. Said, okay, just, we got to stop this. We gotta, it's just, let's just stop it. And we just kind of nipped it right there, and the rest of the day was great, right? And, and so for all of us, myself included, we're on this journey towards this oneness, this covenantal oneness that God has designed for us. In the longest teaching about marriage, this is the introduction. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the introductory verse on marriage. We go to, into a marriage to submit. We go into a marriage to die to ourselves. We go into the marriage to die to self and live for the other person. We go into a marriage to die to self and live for the love of Christ being displayed through our marriage. It's among the hardest things we can do. None of us do it perfectly, but this is our goal. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 says this, Jesus died for us so that in this life or the next, we may live together with him. That's not only the expression of the covenantal love of Christ, that is the expression of the covenant of marriage. Jesus gave his life on a cross to bear our sin, to bear our suffering, to bear the penalty of our sin so that we could live together with him. When we go to that marriage altar, 
We die as Christ died. We lay down our lives. This marriage is not about me. My life is not about me. We are not about me. I am dying for the sake of your benefit. I am dying so you can thrive. And I am dying so that we together as a couple can shine the covenantal love of God through Jesus Christ to each other, to our kids, to our friends, to our church, and to the world. That starts to live into the vision that God has for marriage. Three quick bullet points and then we're done. How can we do this practically? Number one, grow in your covenantal union with God in Christ. The reason why we're here in church every week, the reason why we're here in church every single week is not to check off a box that I did something religious so that God can bless me. That's the old school I did for God, he does for me. It is to be reminded of God's covenantal love for us. Every song, every message, we're reminded of God's covenantal selfless love for us. That fills up our love tank so that we can love our spouse and our kids and our neighbors, right? That's why we're here. Grow in your covenantal union with God in Christ. Second, connect with good, solid, healthy couple friends. If you're married, have good, solid, healthy couple friends. Christian friends would be a wonderful bonus. Good, solid, wonderful people. My wife and I have good, solid friends so that when we struggle, like last Friday, uh, my wife can text her girlfriends, hey, husband was a little bit of a jerk today. Yeah, mine too. And they can console each other, right? And, and then, and then the, the couples can help each other. Hey, we're kind of disconnecting here. You can just help each other always, right? That prevents you from going off the deep end. Uh, which is why, by the way, we have all these small groups and connecting. It's not to check off religious discipline box, boxes. It's to get connected. Third, take advantage of resources. We have tons of resources here at Rancho. Rancho Church is not just a resource for Rancho Church. We are the family resource for Temecula, particularly South Temecula. We have got marriage classes. We have Celebrate Recoveries where, um, say, addictions, habits get in with marriage. Uh, we have marriage retreat. My wife and I lead a marriage retreat every September, September 15th this year, La Quinta Resort in the desert. It's going to be awesome. Sign up. It's live right now. We have uh, Safe Harbor Counseling, Counseling. Org. Safe Harbor Counseling is right here. It's our church's ministry. It's upstairs in the central campus. Uh, get the help you need to either save your marriage or strengthen your marriage. Get the help you need. I remember uh, growing up, I was like those kids in that video. I was in a home that was breaking. I was in a home that was breaking. I remember as a youngster, a uh, young child, little, little kid, I remember the screaming going on in the room in the bedroom next door. I remember the things that were being said. We had paper thin walls. I remember the things being said. My dad to my mom, my mom to my dad as a little kid. I remember the screaming, the yelling, the insults, the, the badgering, the berating. I remember it. I remember the feeling of sitting in that bed with a totally dark room wishing I would just disappear, Right? It was a combination of sadness and tears and anger and rage, right? I remember the, the, the fear of this family potentially breaking apart. I remember separations. My mom and dad separated. I remember uh, the false promises. I will never drink again, I promise, said from the mouth of somebody who was, had been drinking. Uh, we're going to get our act together. This is it. This is the renewal. This is the restoration. I remember all of those promises. I remember it all. Vividly specific instances, and I remember the emotion of it. I also remember the first time I walked into Rancho Community Church as a broken kid and heard about the love of Jesus Christ and received the love of Christ. I also remember when my mom started coming to Rancho Community Church and she received the love of Christ and she got some mentors that poured into her life. I remember when my drug-addicted, violent brother 
walked into Rancho Community Church and he received the love of Christ. And I remember when my dad went with us, I was the youth pastor at the time and we went to a retreat and my dad went to a retreat with my mom who by that time was a small group high school leader. She was volunteering in the high school group here at Rancho. I was the pastor. My dad tagged along at a high school retreat up at uh, Big Bear. He received the love of Christ at that retreat. And over time, it doesn't happen like that, but over time, our broken home started to heal. And I'm telling you, even in retrospect, I don't know how God pulled it off. My house was a wreck. I don't know how he pulled it off. But God's love received by broken people. My mom was broken, my dad was broken, my brother was broken, and I was broken. And over time, and even still today, God is mending our hearts, and he's bringing us together and we are becoming increasingly loving. We still have challenges, increasingly loving. And I'm telling you, my parents are wonderful parents for me, models for me, and incredible grandparents, and models for my kids because of God's unconditional love. Their marriage turned from this transactional, external, I do stuff for you, you do stuff for me, you no longer doing your stuff. Now we're disconnecting, fighting, hating, bad habits, terrible things going on, and God slowly turned that into a covenantal, loving relationship, and they are best friends. God can do that in any marriage. Your marriage is a disaster, get help, come and see us. That story can be yours. If, you, if your marriage has ended in divorce, you will have a whole new start and a new relationship. Make sure your grounding is super solid because we will tend to bring our past mistakes forward. If you are not married yet, this is the perfect time for you to be here and hope this helps you build a good foundation for your marriage ahead. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your love for us, your grace through Jesus Christ. Thank you that every Sunday we can celebrate your grace and mercy. Through every song, through every message, we can fill up our love tank of unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love so that we can pour that out to our spouses, to our kids, to our neighborhood, our coworkers, our friends and family, our church, our community. God, your word is very clear. When a man and a woman are unified in a covenantal relationship, not a civil union, not a transactional arrangement, not a contract of doing stuff for you and you do stuff for me, but a covenantal, sacrificial, self-dying covenant. I'm here to live for your benefit. I'm here to live for the love of Christ displayed through this marriage. That can be a very real thing in every marriage in this church and every marriage to come in this church. That through healthy marriages, the love of Christ would be made known that people will be drawn to love, not judgment, but drawn to love, primarily through marriages. In Christ's name we pray, amen.